0: Genesis 36, verses 1 through 5. Now these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Ada, and daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Olibamah, the daughter of Anah, the granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite, also Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboeth. And Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemath bore Reuel and Olibamah and Jalem in Korah. And these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Now, this is one of those chapters that very few people get truly excited about when we get to. And the reason for that is that it contains long lists of names of people and places that are hard to pronounce and which have really no meaning to us. We wonder why. But never fear. There is an important reason that we are given genealogies in the Bible. But they're not given to us for the reason that we think that they are. You see, genealogies have become a modern fascination to us. Firstly, spurred on by that false God-worshipping Latter-day Saints who hold that in the afterlife, when you are made God of your own world, the family that you have will matter to you because they're going to inhabit your world. So knowing who is in your family and then getting baptized for them in order that they can get to heaven with you and be on your world, that's going to be important to you, which is why genealogy is so important to them. But outside of that false religion, people study genealogies to see Who am I linked to in the past? Am I a descendant of someone who is famous? I myself know that I am a descendant of General George Armstrong Custer because someone in my family did our genealogy. And we think that this is why we study genealogies and why genealogies are important. But the question that we should be asking ourselves is, why are they important to God? Why would he be so painstaking in detail to include them so often in the Bible? And this is the question that we're going to be asking of our chapter today. So let's get into the chapter to see what the answer is. Now, anytime in the book of Genesis, anytime that you see the words, now these are the generations of, at the beginning of a chapter, you know that God is shifting our focus. What has happened before this point is being left behind and our attention is being directed elsewhere and it's all being done purposefully. Genesis 36.1, now these are the generations of Esau. This is Edom. Esau was the twin older brother of Israel, of Jacob. He's an outdoor kind of guy, a hunter, and by all accounts, a solid citizen. We are never given any indication of him ever acting in a manner that is not upright and honest. He did, however, have bad taste in women, marrying local women that were an issue to his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And he could be hot-headed, as told to us, by that vow that he took concerning his little brother Jacob after he had tricked his father in giving him the blessing. But in our minds, in our heads, Every time that we see Esau's name, every time that we read Esau, that name comes with a negative connotation. We always think of him as the villain. And he is this primarily because this is how God sees him, how God spoke of him before he was born. After Isaac and Rebekah had been married for 20-plus years, Then the Lord answered his his prayer concerning his barren wife, and he gave her conception. But as we read back in chapter 25, there were issues with that pregnancy. Verses 22 and 23, the children struggled within her, and she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? She said, if the Lord answered your prayer concerning me being barren, and he's giving me conception, why is this happening? And so she went to inquire of Yahweh and Yahweh said to her, "Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger." We need to hang on to that last verse because it's going to be used later in the explanation of what the Lord desires us to understand concerning this chapter. We are told there that one nation will serve another. That one nation will be stronger than the other. And we think in our minds that they're not the same nation. But they are. But before we get to this, I need to lay a little bit more of a foundation from this chapter. In verse 3, we're told that Esau also married a third woman after the first two Canaanite women. Here's the background of this incident as we know it. In verses 34 and 35 of Genesis chapter 26, And Esau was 40 years old, and he took a wife, Judith, the daughter of Beery, the Hittite, and also Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they brought bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. And somehow Esau didn't realize this truth, so much so that it took the stealing of his blessing to make this light bulb come on his head which is what we're told in verses 6 through 9 of Genesis 28. And Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take for himself a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughter of Canaan. And that Jacob had listened to his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan were displeasing in the sight of his father, and Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalah the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboath, to be his wife, besides the wives that he had. And then, from our chapter today, verse 3, also Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Neboath. I hope that you caught that there's a problem there. Somehow, someone got the name of his wives wrong it sure seems that on the surface that when moses wrote this chapter he made an error and got the names and the family ties of the wives of esau wrong but i mean honestly who could blame him after all it's not like esau was the chosen son it's not like his family really mattered in the grand scheme of things i mean the messiah was not going to come from his family his family wasn't the favored one so what's the big deal But before we are ready to declare that the Bible is not the infallible word of God because these names of these women are different, let's just think for a bit. First of all, let's admit to ourselves that we live in a completely different world and culture than the patriarchs did. That our culture is completely different than theirs and is driven by a completely different language. And even our social norms are different than theirs. And then secondly, let's just for a second lay aside the truth that the Word of God is the Word of God, completely infallible. Let's just lay that aside for a second, and let's actually think this through for a minute. You see, one man wrote the book of Genesis, and that man was Moses. In fact, he is the same man who penned the first five books of the Bible, called the Torah. And are we really to think that a man who could remember the details of every event from let there be light all the way to the end of Exodus would make such a mistake like this? That he would actually put a typo in there and giving the wrong, wrong names to these women? Just eight chapters apart from each other? And long before the Torah was ever written down in written form, the Torah was handed down through verbal resuscita- or res- resuscitation. People would then, they would actually be told what the, um, the Torah was. They would be taught what these books were. And they were expected then to recite them back verbatim exactly as they were told to them long before they were written down. And then even after they were written down, this was still the Jewish custom for a young man to be able to get his bar mitzvah, even up to and including when Jesus walked the earth. And throughout that 2,000 plus years, from the time of Jesus going all the way back to Moses, these names remained exactly as they are now, and no one had an issue with them. And if they were wrong, you would have thought that someone would have noticed. Someone would have said something. Someone would have said, Dad, why is this different? They got, they got their names wrong. But there are other options. Rather than thinking that Moses was just absent-minded or careless. You see, we know historically that people very often would change their names because of an event that happened in their life, such as when Naomi changed her name to Mara in Ruth chapter 1. And Sarai had her name changed, Abram had his name changed, so did Jacob. And very often in the Bible, there are names given once of a group of people or of a person as they are called by one people group. And then their name were given again as they are known by a second people group, such as the account of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, whereas they were known to the Jewish people. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And this is more than likely the reason for the differing names of our account today. The names of the, we, the women that Esau married, while not being pointless, are not truly germane to the reason that we're given verse 3 of our account and even verse 9 of Genesis 28. The reason that these verses are given are because of the truth told concerning the son of Hagar in Genesis 16. Do you remember her? Do you remember Hagar, that slave of the barren wife of Abram who was forced to marry him? And after she submitted to the, her mistress's wishes, wishes and had relationships with Abram, Sarah then was not too happy with her, and so she started mistreating her, which caused Hagar to flee. And then we're told, now the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the uh, spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarai's servant woman, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of Yahweh said to her, return to your mistress and humble yourself under her hands. Moreover, the angel of Yahweh said to her, I will greatly multiply your seeds so that they will be too many to be counted. And the angel of Yahweh said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall name, call his name Ishmael. Verses 7 through 11. And after she returned, afterwards the Lord appeared to Abram, and he reiterated the covenant promise that he had made with that man long ago, giving, promising him land, protection, a heritage, and in chapter 17, beginning in verse 17, we're told how this father of faith reacted when God promised him that. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a son be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a son? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his seed after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him and make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. And he shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant... I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this, at this season next year. Esau was never promised a heritage. He was not promised a land. Those were the promises that were contained in the blessing that his father gave to Isaac, or Isaac gave to Jacob. But what we find as we read through this genealogy is that God kept his promise with Abraham, just as he had with that slave woman, Hagar. Ishmael would have mighty nations come from his lineage. And did you notice that it was to Ishmael that many kingdoms were promised? And to Isaac the only thing was promised to him was the covenant. And before we move any further away from the actual text given today into the application of them, we must deal with one more thing from our chapter today, verses 6 through 9. Then Esau took his wives and his sons and his daughters and all his household and his livestock and all his cattle and all his acquired goods, which he had accumulated in the land of Canaan. And he went to the land away from his brother Jacob. For their possessions had become too great for them to live together. And the land where where they sojourned could not sustain them because of their livestock. So Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. And these are the generations of Esau. The father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. Verse 6 from our chapter today begins with that word then. And it sure seems like the then that is spoken of there. That word then is given to us to make us think that it was after Jacob had come back into the promised land, after being away for more than 20 years, it was then that Esau moved to Seir. Even though we're told in chapter 32 that Esau had moved to Seir long ago. And in fact, this is where Jacob sent his slaves to find Esau, where in fact they did find him. But the then that is meant at the beginning of verse 6 is germane, to the meaning of this chapter. You see, Esau moved to Seir many years before Jacob returned from Laban. And at the same time, he moved to Seir away from his brother Jacob even before he was not in that land at that time. And to answer how this is, I wanted to direct your attention to something from our text, something that you may have noticed As it was being read to us. Something that is reiterated time and again in this chapter. Verse 1, these are the generations of Esau. Verse 10, these are the names of Esau's sons. Verse 19, these are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. And these are their chiefs. Verse 31, now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king of the sons of Israel reigned. Verse 40, now these are the names of the chiefs descended from Esau according to their families and their places by their names. And the importance of these verses are all summed up in verse 43. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to their place of habitation in the land of their possession. And these verses all say the same thing. And they all point to undeniable facts. The facts that they are all attesting to is this. That God is faithful to his word. What word? The word given to a man that was not the joy that was set before him. Not the man Esau, but that man Ishmael, a man who would become the father of multiplied kings, who would war against the chosen people of God, who would continually be an issue for these people, who even after they become a nation and have their own king would war with them, a people who Middle Eastern nations in our modern times all look to Ishmael as being their father. And the thing that we are supposed to glean from this genealogy of the not chosen sons of Esau does concern us. There are some real stark contrasts being made between Esau and Jacob, between their sons, the lineage of both of them the covenant promised by God was made to Abraham, was then passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob. And we're told in in Genesis 35, and the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you and I will give the land to your seed after you. Verse 12. And what we are meant to glean from this is this, that this is the covenant promise of God to this man and his lineage. But it's Esau and the sons of Esau, who were actually born in the promised land, not the sons of Jacob. Once again, that information, those facts are told to us and made, are made clear to us in our last chapter that the sons of Jacob were all born to him when he lived in Padanaram, Aram. Verses Genesis 20, or 35, verse 26. Even though the covenant promise of land and the people were made to Israel, And we're told in our chapter today, now these are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king of the sons of Israel reigned. Verse 31, the land was promised to Israel and yet it was Esau and his family who lived there, who reigned there, who prospered there. It would be well over 400 years before Israel would actually come to possess the land. First, they had to go into Egypt and 400 years living there moving from being guests in that country to being foreigners in that country to being subjects in that country and then into slaves in that country before they would be moved out of that country and then finally into their own. And you're wondering, how is this germane to me? In all this time, throughout all those years, they The children of Israel held on to the promises of the Lord as being yes and amen. And saints, this is how it's remained to us. We need to learn to play the long game when it comes to the Lord. We need to look at chapters such as ours today. And allow it to refocus our view on life and give give us an eternal perspective on life and on the promises of God. You see, we have been given the greatest gift in being called Son. His Son. Having His Son given to us. And like Jacob, we have covenant promises made to us. I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. And like Jacob, like the children of Israel, we can find ourselves asking, what good are those promises? Especially when I'm unhappy where I am. What good are those promises when this life is not what I thought it was going to be? When I'm living in a place that I'm not really happy at? I didn't want to end up here when the person that I'm married to is far less than what I was hoping for, or maybe I'm not married. What good did it do, Jacob? What good did it do, Jacob, to be given that birthright and the blessing of his father, and then, and then, and then have the covenant personally given to him by God When all the things that seemingly are wrapped up in that birthright, the blessing and then the covenant were never his to use, not to enjoy. They were promised to him. The covenant was made with him. But it was Esau and his clan who enjoyed them. He had been given land and yet it was the sons of Esau who were born into it. He had been promised a people, and yet it's Esau who has multiplied kings in his lineage. What good did it do, Jacob? What good do the promises of God do us? And this is why we need a biblical perspective on this life. We need an eternal perspective. We need... Uh, to change our view. We need to view the lineage from our chapter today alongside of the covenant promise made to Israel and to understand what it means to be in the covenant of God. What is the value? What does that value do for us? And to be able to do that, we need to head to the New Testament. So grab your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we hear this so often. We read this so often. And we never actually allow this truth to be absorbed into our being. It's almost boring to us. And the reason for this is shocking. The reason is boring to us is because God is so good to us. Because if the Lord in His great kindness ever were to pull back the curtain of the truth that is preventing you from seeing the reality of just how much of a monster of iniquity you are, how grievous your treacherous sin is to Him, If in his grace he ever allowed you to know this truth, allowed you to feel it, to see it, it would be then that verses such as verse 3 of Ephesians 1 would become joyous and even mind-blowing to us. Instead, we just read it and go, and? Saints, I want you to stop. I want you to now, to look deep within your heart and ask yourself soul-searching questions. Does this really matter to you? Does the truth of God and what he has done for you, does it matter to you? Enough that you won't murmur against him because you're not content. Even in your current circumstances, He has blessed you, not only in the eternal realm, but he has blessed you in the physical realm as well. And you may not think that this is truth, but unless you are living underneath a bridge, having to dumpster dive for your very existence, walking everywhere you desire to go with ill-fitting shoes if you have a pair of shoes, if that is not your truth, then you have been blessed exceedingly. He has blessed you in this realm. But more importantly, much more importantly, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, in Christ. We read this truth and we think this has no value to us zero but this was the thing this was the single thing that jacob counted as the benefit of being in the covenant with the lord not the land not the promises not the wealth or the heritage that he would be given it was the presence of the lord in his life that God had made himself known to him. That mattered to him, which is why when God told him to go to Bethel, he gathered up his clan and he told them, let us arise, go to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Genesis 35.3 And this is the single thing that mattered to Joseph That son of Jacob, who at the end of his life, living his entire life outside of the promised land, having lived his his entire life outside of the promises of God, and that covenant. Joseph said this to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. Genesis 50, verses 24 and 25. Being made part of that covenant community of God mattered to Jacob. It had mattered to Abraham, to Isaac, and it mattered to Joseph. Does it matter to you? Or would you rather trade those 12 kingdoms like Ishmael and Esau. It should matter. Because the promises and the blessings that are given to us are ours because of the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And they go much deeper than we can ever think or imagine. Far beyond our comfort and the pleasures of this life. Verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians 1 just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Stop. Think. Did you just hear what God said about you? What the value of the covenant that you have been made part of, what value there is, what the value of that covenant is. You are holy you were blameless before God now in love by predestinating us to adoptions as son through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will saints we need an eternal and not a temporal perspective even concerning the temporal You see, the vast majority of those that have been predestined to adoption, they are not of the physical covenant line of Jacob of Israel. Most, in fact, are not. Not at least in the fleshly way. How many of you here are Jewish by origin? And this is why chapters like ours from today matter. Why lineages and genealogies should matter to us. Chapters such as ours are the reason that predestination matters. But before we can get to the why that this is, I want to give you a couple more verses to throw into this mix to bolster and even deepen the meaning of predestination. And they also come from that first chapter of Ephesians, verse 11. In him we also have been made an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That, ver- that verse, verse 11, uses that word predestined again. And this is a biblical word, one that you would do well to get used to using, being comfortable with the meaning of it, because it's a biblical truth that at its core means this. God plays favorites. God chose a select group of people to send his son into the world to die for. And those people are called the elect of God. And elect means predestined, chosen, selected. And God is omniscient, all-knowing, meaning that he isn't fooled by us. He sees the hearts and even the thoughts of all men. He knows what all men are like, what they are really, truly like. And in his glorious grace, He chose to redeem some, those that he predestined to be in his Son. And this is what we like to think predestined means. And it does, but it means much more than this as well, which is what we are told in verse 11 of Ephesians 1 and in Genesis chapter 36. I want to take a few minutes and dissect verse 11 of Ephesians 1 in order that we can use it to understand why chapters such as the genealogy of Esau, why these chapters, why chapters like this should actually matter to us, and what the predestination of God really, truly looks like, and how it fleshes out practically. So, verse 11 of Ephesians 1 in him. Now, this is the most central and important part of this verse and even our Christian lives. Because if you're not in Him, then you're not a Christian. If you're not in Him, you have no standing before the Father. If you are not in Him, you have not been redeemed. Your sins have not been atoned for. And you are not holy or blameless. And for this reason, you cannot stand before His presence. You must be in Him. What does that mean to be in Him? It means that you have been made aware of who you are, outside of him that you are a sinner that you are under his wrath and will suffer eternally because of your sin do you realize this do you realize this about yourself then do you also realize that the vast majority of people do not realize this they are convinced they're good They're all good. They're nice. They're kind. Not monsters of iniquity. If you know that you are evil, you should rejoice because he has made you alive to this truth. And if he has made you alive to this truth, then you are being called. You are of the elect. You have been predestined to be in him. And now you are responsible for obeying. And this is one of those biblical truths, principles, of Christ and the covenant of being in him. He commands, you obey. And realize this, if you ever feel stuck with the Lord and just desire him to, man, I just want to get on to the next step. Understand this with the Lord. He will never take you past that last thing that he commanded you to do and you have not done. Repent of your sin which means change your mind concerning your former life. Confess with your mouth that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that you put your trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ, your Lord. And then comes the first step of obedience after confessing and believing. You must be baptized. Must be baptized. Can you be saved outside of baptism? Yes. The thief on the cross is an evidence of this truth. And there's no magic in the waters of baptism. However, if you are like 99.999% of people in the world, you can come forward to the elders of the church and make a public declaration of salvation and the desire to be seen within Christ, to be part of him, to be baptized into his death and into the new life of Christ. And if you can do this, and you're unwilling to do it, you're not saved. You shouldn't think that you are. In him is the key phrase in our life with Christ. And in him, we are told that we also have made an inheritance. Now, I read and I preach from the Legacy Standard Bible. You probably, you may not. And in your translation, other versions render this section of scripture as stating that we have received an inheritance. Not that we have been made an inheritance. So which is it? Are we an inheritance or have we received an inheritance? It's both. The Bible says that the inheritance that was given to Abraham, the inheritance that was passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob, is not just a physical inheritance. In fact, the inheritance that matters the most is not in this realm, but in the heavenly, as we read in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm. But how then? If we receive an inheritance, then how then are we made an inheritance when we inherit? To understand that, we need to travel back to the Old Testament, to a chapter that was written after Genesis, but which explains and even ties up the meaning of our account from Genesis. Grab your Bible again. Turn back with me to a book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 32. The meaning of Deuteronomy, that word is literally second telling or or second giving. And it's the second telling, the second giving of the covenant of God and the laws that went with that covenant of God. And in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, we're given verses that will unlock Genesis 36 for us in light of Ephesians 1. There we read, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the numbers of the sons of Israel. And that's verse 8. And here is what we are, we are to understand concerning our verses in Genesis and what God means in Ephesians 1.11 when we are told that having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, God does predestine the elect of God. But this does not mean that he does not have a plan or even a direction for the non-elect of God. Do you remember verse 43 from our chapter today? These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of the Edomites, according to the place of their habitation in the land of their possession. You see, we in our humanity, we desire to believe that this isn't so, that God doesn't work this way. We're very happy to acknowledge that God chose us. And that makes us feel very warm and fuzzy inside. And then we console ourselves that he does not actively work in the lives of those that he did not choose to be in him. Those that will die and then will suffer an eternity of his wrath. We just want to believe he just leaves them alone. He lets them live their life. Somehow he's sovereign over them, just as he is over the elect. But we don't know how that works. We don't want to believe that he actually is active in their life. Because this is an uncomfortable truth. But we can't get past phrases such as, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's biblical language. You see, the genealogy of Esau, is given us to make us realize that God does work all things according to the counsel of his will. You see, it will be one of the descendants of Esau who will try to have Jesus murdered as an infant and will be the reason that Joseph and Mary will flee with that infant child from Herod the Great fulfilling the word of God concerning the Messiah that he will come up out of Egypt. And it will be the sons of Esau that God will use to punish the disobedient children of Israel in the defeat of their kingdom of Israel and then their initial exile from the promised land. And then it will be those actions that these people do against the children of Israel that will be the reason that God deals with Edom as promised by that prophet Obadiah. And then chronicled for us in Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 through 5. It's there, in that book, that we read of our fickleness and even of their fickleness. Malachi chapter 1, verses 2. I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, How have you loved us? And isn't this where we find ourselves so often? Lord, what have you done for me lately? Wondering about the love of God in our lives, when our lives are mundane, or hard, or painful, or not fulfilling. How have you loved us, Lord? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares Yahweh? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. And I have set his mountains to be a desolation and an inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Even as far back as that prophet Malachi, God was using his predestination as living proof of his love for his predestined people. Even though they didn't feel like they were being loved. He said to them, as he says to us, remember Esau, remember Jacob. Remember the covenant promise made to one man. The inheritance promised him. And think of Esau and what has happened to him. One man had multiplied kingdoms come from him. The other was the son of the covenant. And there in Malachi, verses 4 and 5, we read, Though Edom says, we have been demolished, But we will return and build up the waste places. But thus says Yahweh of hosts, Oh, they may build, but I will pull down, and men will call them a territory of wickedness, and the people toward whom Yahweh is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, Yahweh be magnified beyond the territory of Israel. Are there any Edomites? No, there is no nation Edom. And it didn't matter that they claimed that they were going to rebuild. God predestined according to the counsel of his will that it would not be so, and so it was not. Which then brings us back to the last verse of that Deuteronomy passage. Verse 8, when the Most High gave their nation their inheritance, remember our verses from today, Esau, Edom, living in their inheritance, When the Most High God gave their nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. And then verse 9, For Yahweh's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. And this is why verse 11 of Ephesians 1 should be rendered that we are an inheritance. And we are given our chapter today, the genealogy of Esau, to remind us of the importance of being in the covenant of God in order that we can know that God is reigning and predestinating all things together for the good, for those that are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. It doesn't matter your situation. God has not left you. He has not forsaken you. Because we are in Christ. Because we are in Him. We are to know that no matter what our life looks like here, no matter how hard, no matter how bitter or painful this life is, look up. Remember the promise of the Lord to the patriarchs. And His promises are yes and amen. He has called you, dear one. He has predestined you to be in him from before the foundation of the world. And he has justified you in the propitiation of his son. And he has glorified you. You haven't yet reached that final promise, though. But that promise is without question Remember Jacob and Esau. It will happen. Because this is the will of God for you. But saints, as wonderful as that truth is, it's not the predestination. It's not the call. It's not even the justification or even the glorification that's important in this covenant. It's Him It's him. He's the one that does all of these things. He is the one who is the lover of your soul. And he is the one, the only one, that will ever satisfy the longing of your soul. Nothing else will. No one else will. And we're given genealogies like this in order to refocus our attention from this temporal to the eternal, from the multiplied billions of people that have lived and died who are just like you, to the one who makes you special. The one who makes your life special. Because if you are His, You were found in his genealogy. And that's all that matters. Let's pray.